Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Hola! Hola, amigo! Hola, mi amigo! Hola, amigo! Hola, mi amigo! Por favor, uno momento. Ah. Hola, vecino. Uh, te gustera venir uh, conmigo a la iglesia el domingo. Mi iglesia es muy dorito. Dur dorito? Uh, oh, oh <laughs> dervitido. Uh, y se puede transformar tu vida de pecano. Oh, pecado, pecado. <laughs> not, not pecano, but, but, uh, pecano says muy delicioso. See? 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 See, I, See? I don't even See? know, I don't even know what you're saying. You speak English? Yes. You're not a Spaniard. Well, I'm a quarter Hispanic, but I don't, I don't speak the language. Seriously? Yeah, I never, seriously. I never learned the language. Seriously. What were you saying? Never mind. Hey Amen. Well, that video was faster than I wanted it to be. Welcome to the exchange. Good morning. Glad you're here. Amen. Thank you, all of you. Listen, we're so excited to be uh, starting a brand new series today entitled Faithful. Everybody say faithful. Now, this is not a series on church attendance. Uh, <laughs> I knew I'd get somebody on that one. But uh, we're just going to go, listen, have you ever gone through, and, and I'll, I'll adjust this in a little bit, we, we'll see if it's uh, going to work out for me. I just had an idea last night, so we're going to try it. But have you ever met someone who you might consider having unshakable faith? Anybody? Right? We've probably all met someone from time to time, or you cross paths with someone. Uh, even if you're not a big religious person, maybe you're watching online this morning, you're not a big religious person, but probably all of us have met someone along the way, or maybe it was a grandmother or a, a mom or a friend or somebody who just had this un, unshakable faith that no matter what happened, no matter what they were introduced to, no matter what came along, they just had this confidence that God was God. And that no matter what, God would be involved in their situation and that nothing shook them. Y'all know people like that? It's amazing. And when you meet people like that, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I have done this. You wonder, what would I do? How would I respond if I were in their situation? Right? I've seen people who've just had tragedy. I mean just unimaginable tragedy hit them, and it's made me wonder, could I be that strong in that situation? Could I have that kind of unshakable faith? 
Have you ever gone into a situation like this? And I've done this several times. But you, especially as a pastor, you know, sometimes you get phone calls that are sad and just heartbreaking and, and you have to go and, and you meet with a family or something and you go and you meet with this family and then after you spend an hour or two with them, you leave and you are the one so inspired, right? Like you go and meet with this family who's gone through this just unimaginable tragedy and then you leave and you think, man, their face, their their tone, their countenance, their tone of voice, their, their attitude, it does not match the circumstances that they're currently in. And, and if you've ever experienced that, if you haven't ever experienced that, I pray that someday you do. But if you've ever experienced that, it's just amazing. It's amazing how confident they are and how, how convinced they are that there's more to life than just this life. And they experience suffering and pain and disappointment all. And that God's text of knowing that there's still a God and that God still loves them and that God's still involved and God's still a part of what's going on. And God can intervene and God cares and God loves them. But their faith, it's just unshakable. Everybody say unshakable. It's not their amazing belief. Because you can argue with people about their beliefs, right? But you can't argue with someone about their faith. It's what we call amazing faith. We've heard of amazing grace, right? Amazing faith, how sweet the sound. I'm going to write a song. It's going to be entitled Amazing Faith. Hallelujah. That was a joke. Nobody got it. That's all right. Listen, amazing faith, it's active, it's gritty, it's real world, it's the circumstances of life, and it informs their responses, and it informs their decisions every single day of their life. So the question that, that I hope that we're going to ask throughout this series and that we're going to answer throughout this series is this, where does that kind of faith come from? And... Maybe I hope you are going to ask this question, how do I get it, right? Where in the world does this unshakable, crazy faith come from, and how do I sign up for that? I want to be a part of that. I want that kind of faith. That's what this series is going to be all about. So, if you're somebody who you feel like maybe throughout your lifetime, your faith, your faith in God, your faith in in Christ has slowly deteriorated or started to slip away, or you feel like maybe you're, you're in the process right now of beginning to lose your faith, lose your confidence in God, or maybe once a time you had a rock-solid confidence in God, and now you say, Jared, I've just read too much, I've seen too much, I've heard too much, I've experienced too much, I just don't have that kind of confidence in God anymore. I don't know what happened. Listen, how do I get it? Maybe this series will help explain what happened to you. So, here we go. Ready? All right, good deal. When you follow Jesus throughout the Gospels, and when you follow Jesus through the life of Christ, you're going to discover that there are two things, only two things. If you go and you read the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are two things that amazed Jesus. Think about that. 
How awesome would it be to be one of the two things through, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life of Christ, to be one of the two things that amaze. Actually, the Greek term is, is, implies he marveled at, okay? He was marveled by, okay? So when you read that, one of the first things, the first thing that, that Jesus marveled at or he was amazed at, we find in Matthew. And it's a really familiar story. We've preached on this, I know. Uh, but the, Jesus and the apostles, they're going along, and a centurion, he walks up to Jesus, and he says, hey, Jesus, I, I, I need a favor from you. And now when he, he confronts Jesus, he meets Jesus, the apostles initially aren't excited about this. They don't understand why he's even talking to Jesus, okay? So they have an issue with this because he's a Roman. And on top of that, he's a centurion. And he comes to Jesus and he says, listen, I have a, a servant who's at home sick. Would you please heal my servant? And now, the apostles that are with Jesus, they thought they knew God. And since they thought they knew God, they thought they knew the answer to that question that would be from the man of God, that was representing God, right? This Jesus is saying that he's a man of God, he's the son of God. So if they know God, they should know his answer. And so they assume that he's going to say no, right? Because he can't go to the centurion's house. He would become ceremonially unclean, right? He would, this is not going to work. It's never going to work. And so they assume that Jesus was going to say no. And Jesus looks at the centurion and he goes, sure, right? So that, that messed with the disciples. It messed with the apostles. They were so confused because Jesus offers to follow this centurion home. He says, yeah, I'll go with you. Let's go to your house. And the centurion turns around. He looks at Jesus and he says, whoa, you don't need to go with me. Yeah, I know who you are. Oh, I get goosebumps every time I even think about this. He says, you don't need to go with me. I know who you are. I've seen you. I know how this works. Like you, we have this in common. Like you, he says this, for I myself and a man am a man under authority with soldiers under me. What he's saying is this. Listen, I know how this works. Me and you, we're, we're a lot the same. I have soldiers under me, and I say a command, and they go carry it out. Not because of who I am, but because of who I represent. I represent the Roman Empire. So when I say something, they go and they do it. <laughs> Jesus, I've been watching you, <laughs> and there's something about you. You could not do the things that you do without there being something bigger. You're under something that is greater than you, bigger than you. That's how you're able to do the things. I know we're, we're a lot the same here, Jesus. And he says, so you don't have to go with me. I know how this works. If you want to just, if you want to heal my servant, if you choose to heal him, you just say a command, and I know that it's going to be done. You just say the word, and I know it's going to be done. When he makes that statement, this is the first of the two points in the Bible. Matthew writes this. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Everybody say amazed. The, the Greek word there is thamazo, and the word there implies he was amazed. He was astonished. He was impressed. 
So he was impressed. He was astonished. But by what? I mean, what really happened, right? So if you think about this and you read this story, what was so impressive? Because, I mean, just a little bit before this, uh, Jesus healed uh, a leper. There was no big deal. This leper asked Jesus to heal him, and Jesus heals him. But there's no amazement and an impression and astonishment attached to that, right? So why was he so amazed all of a sudden at this guy? What was it? Well, fortunately for us and those of you that are watching today, Jesus answers that question. Jesus tells us exactly why he was so amazed. And again, this is one of the two times in the Gospels that Jesus was ever recorded being amazed by anything. And Jesus says this out loud, and he says it in front of the whole crowd. And, and I think this was really more as a dig at his followers that were with him. But he says this, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now, if I'm one of his disciples, I'm like, really? But that's what Jesus says. There, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The thing that amazed Jesus most was big faith, bold, active, informed faith. Right? We're not singing about amazing grace here. For a moment, we're singing about amazing Faith, this crazy faith, and what made this faith so different from the other people that Jesus had encountered with? There were a lot of people that Jesus came up to and he said, your faith has made you whole, your faith has healed you. So faith was, a lot of people had faith. What was it about this faith that amazed that the mazo, Jesus? Well, the centurion put two and two together. He had an understanding of who Jesus was. And this was important because he recognized the uniqueness of Jesus. And when he recognized the uniqueness of Jesus, he went all in. Essentially, he was saying, Jesus, if you choose to do this for me, you don't need to come to my house and do it. And when he says that, Jesus looks at him, he's like, wow, that's what I've been looking for. That is exactly what I've been waiting for, that kind of faith, that kind of faith. Now, a fun fact here, and this may be in, in, in stark contrast to some of the ways that you grew up, if you grew up kind of in a religious system, but this is just a little fun fact here, but Jesus never or was never amazed or astonished, he never marveled at anyone's Knowledge or their obedience. Think about that. Jesus never responded to somebody like, wow, that is such great, the bodzo, that is such great insight. I am so amazed and astonished. Where did you come up with that? How did you, did you create that? I, I was never, listen, and here's the real shocker Jesus was never amazed at anyone's obedience. And see, the church, we like to preach obedience because it's a sense of control, right? 
We like to preach, you need to be obedient and obedient because there's, there's a sense of power there for the church. Listen, Jesus was not impressed by obedience. It wasn't that that amazed him. He was most amazed and most oppressed. And the thing that got his attention was when someone had extraordinary, extraordinary faith. Faith that wasn't just simply in their head, but faith that was lived out in the reality of life. Now, the other thing that Jesus was most amazed at is the opposite of the first one, okay? Now, I told you there was two things that really amazed Jesus. The first one was this amazing, amazing, extraordinary faith of the centurion. The second one actually takes place in Jesus' hometown. So Jesus and his followers, his, his apostles and stuff, they go back to his hometown. And when they get there, Jesus starts teaching. Well, when he starts teaching, just like everywhere he went, he started drawing a crowd. There he performed a few miracles, you know. Uh, everybody's talking about him. He's this really big deal. And then all of a sudden in his hometown, you can go read this in Mark chapter, I think it's 6. Mark chapter 6. All of a sudden, there becomes a little bit of hometown jealousy, okay? Jesus was there teaching the people, blessing the people, loving the people, and all of a sudden, a group of people started going, wait, 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 wait. Aha, I got it. You know who that is? Didn't he grow up here? Isn't he from here? Didn't he? I know him. That. That's Mary's son. Go read this. This is what he said. That's Mary's son. That's, that's James and Joseph and Judas and Simon's brother, right? He had these brothers. And his sisters are over here because Jesus had sisters, if you didn't know that. And he said, that's Mary's son. I know exactly who that is. He grew up around here. And all the guys start talking. Oh, yeah, that's Jesus' son. He grew, we know who he is. And all of a sudden, he's going to come into town and act like he's all that. He's better than us. All of a sudden, he's going to come in here and act like he's just the man or whatever. We know who you are. We know where you're from, right? And they said all that, and Jesus, again, he was amazed. The mazo. But this time, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Their lack of faith. So there are two things that amazed, amazed Jesus, great faith and a lack of faith. Those are the two instances recorded throughout the life of Christ where he was blown away. He was amazed. He was shocked. He was impressed. He was astonished. He marveled at it. Now, here's what we learn when we follow Jesus through the Gospels, that his agenda for the first century followers and I believe his agenda for us, the 21st century followers, would be that we would become a people of great faith, active, in spite of, going to believe. No and for people who grew up in the church, some of those who would consider ourselves Christians, it gets really confusing for us. For people outside the church, I think it gets really confusing uh, of the way that we talk about faith sometimes. But this is important. Faith, unlike hope and optimism, now, you should have hope. You should have optimism, okay? I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm saying you should have those things. But faith, unlike hope and optimism, faith always has an object, okay? 
So, for example, when you board a jet, when you get on a plane <coughs> and you're planning on taking a trip going somewhere, you have hope. You're optimistic that you're going to get there on time. You're optimistic that you're going to arrive safely, right? You have hope that you're going to get there on time, and you have hope that you're going to arrive safely, but that is not the same thing as faith, okay? Your hope and your faith, I mean, your hope and your optimism certainly aren't unfounded, but neither your hope nor your optimism is the foundation of your faith. They're not the object of your faith. You're not placing your faith in your hope and in your optimism. Now, I'm going to explain why. You're actually placing or anchoring your faith in the mechanical integrity of the jet and the knowledge and experience of the pilot, right? <laughs> right? And as a result, you're optimistic and hopeful that you're going to arrive safely. But your faith isn't, isn't tied to your hope and optimism. Your faith is, is tied to the integrity of the plane and the knowledge of the pilot. And because you have faith there, you have optimism and hope that everything's going to be all right. Does that make sense? Faith always has an object. Always has an object. The object of faith is not a particular outcome. Okay? Say that one more time. The object of your faith, so if that was a jet and a pilot, it's not a particular outcome. Faith is not an optimism. They hope for a particular outcome. Faith is not a particular outcome, okay? And in the words, in, in other words, faith, the way that Jesus talked about faith, that the way that we find it in the New Testament, and I think, listen, we, we think this way all the time. Well, I just have faith, everything's going to be fine. You ever said that? I just have faith everything's going to work out. I have faith everything's going to be fine. I have faith that everything's going to be okay. Listen, that's not faith. That's hope and optimism. Nothing? That's okay. <laughs> Do you hear what I'm saying? And I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I say it too. I've said it too. It's kind of natural. It's kind of Christianese. It rolls off the tongue. We have faith that everything's going to be fine. No, you're optimistic. Everything's going to be fine. Okay, and I'm going to explain why. Jesus was not amazed. And listen, having optimism and hope that everything's going to be fine is fine. That's okay. I'm not saying that's wrong. So don't think I'm saying you can't be optimistic and hope for something. But Jesus was not amazed and not moved by our optimism and our hope. He was not amazed and moved by the optimism or the hope of the centurion. What amazed him was the fact that the centurion recognized that Jesus was the object of his faith. Okay? He was the object. He, he was confident in the object of his faith that the object of his faith could do things that would not otherwise be done. There's a big difference there. It wasn't hope and optimism. The object of his faith was Jesus. So the point that I'm trying to get to with all of this crazy analogy stuff, the point is this, and this is really important. The point of Jesus' ministry, 
The point of Jesus' earthly ministry was that Jesus, he was establishing himself as the object of faith. That's what he was trying to do. He was establishing himself as the object of faith. This is why when you read through the Gospels, if you have grew, grew up in church, you heard this over and over and over. You heard people invited to put their faith in God, right? People put their faith, put their confidence in God, put their trust in God. In fact, on the night that Jesus was arrested, they had this long, complicated conversation, had this challenging conversation with the apostles, and Jesus was saying some things that were disturbing, some things that were a little bit confusing, and they were just, their heads were, were kind of spinning, and they were really disturbed. And so towards the end of this conversation, Jesus says this, and John writes this down. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, right? Don't you? You believe in God, correct? And, and, I mean, when he said that, he didn't mean you believe that God exists. That's not what he said. In fact, this is really, really cool. John, John wrote this, okay? Now, John, he spent three and a half years with Jesus, walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, living with Jesus. And now Jesus is dead and gone and resurrected and up in heaven John is now an old, old man, and he's now dictating the life of Christ, and he's writing down this document. He's not writing the Bible. He's writing down dictating the life of Christ, and he puts a word together. He puts a phrase together that has never shown up in Greek literature before this point, and I think that's really cool. What he does is phenomenal because there's no word for what he's trying to say. There's no word for trust. Like we would say in English, we would say trust in or I trust you. They didn't have a word for that. They just had believe, belief, beliefs, okay? But there's no word for trust. And so what John is trying to get to is he's trying to get to something beyond simply believing and and. He's not saying that you have to believe that God exists. So what he does is he takes the Greek word, the Greek verb for believe, and he marries it to the preposition in, like I-N. And uh, in Greek, it's epsilon, which is new or E-N. And this is the first time these two words ever appear in Greek together. And it communicates something beyond belief that. It communicates what we say in English as trust in, okay? It's never been said before, and he puts these words together, so he's trying to explain. What he's saying is, God, Jesus, at the end of this conversation with the apostles, they're confused, they're disturbed, they're frustrated a little bit, and he says, hey, guys, don't let your hearts be hardened, okay? And then he says, You trust in God, right? You trust in God. Now, we in English, we say believe in, but he's not asking if they believe he exists. He's asking you put your trust in God, correct? And he says this. So if you believe in God, he says, I want you to believe also in me. So your trust trust in God, I need you to also put your trust in God. 
me. I want to become the object of your faith. I want you to trust me the way that you have trusted God. And once again, Jesus is establishing himself with the apostles as the object of their faith. Not hope and not optimism. He's saying, I have to be the object of your faith. And when I'm the object of your faith, then sparks hope and optimism. So, there's something else going on here as well. And we talk about this all the time here at The Exchange. Because this is, this is really um, a reflection of who I am and, and who I've become but I don't think you could talk about it too much, so I'm going to say it again. Jesus was positioning himself as the object of their faith because Jesus wanted to be the focus of their faith because while he was on earth, Jesus came to show us what God was really like, okay? I say this all the time. I say this in conversations with people all the time that I believe Jesus' mission, when he came to this earth, his number one mission was to show us what God is really like, what God was like, the, what, to reveal God's true nature. Now, if we were to do a survey of everybody in this room, everybody in this building, all those that watch online, your friends, family, and we were to have everybody write down what describe, tell us what God is like, what God is really like. We would have answers all over the place, right? In fact, so many people that may be watching or listening or whatever, the reason they become so disappointed in God or quit believing in God is because their assumptions of what God is like, what they think God likes, what they think God dislikes, what they think God approves of, and they have these misconceptions, and, and so that, that has caused them to slowly back away from God. It's like, yeah, I know what you're about. I know seen in a very religious community, very religious, and all these people had lots and lots and lots of assumptions about God and who God was. And Jesus slowly starts to reveal that many, if not most of their assumptions that they had believed, taught, believed, taught, preached, taught for generations, Jesus shows up and basically shows them, your assumptions of God are wrong. You're everything. And he's talking to the, you know, to the Jews, the Jewish people here. And they were missing it. One of the reasons Jesus came was to reveal and to explain what God was actually like and to correct some of those incorrect assumptions. In fact, he was so clear about this that it was so offensive that people thought, no, 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 no. We know who God is. We know what God is all about. See? We have this box, this little God box, and God is in this box, and we know exactly what God is about. And Jesus was clear, if you want to know what God is really about, then you watch me. You watch me, and I'll show you. If you want to know what God is like, then you listen to me. If you want to know what God is like, then follow me. So, of course, 
this was extremely offensive in this tight-knit religious community because Jesus is blowing up, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I, okay, I'm going to say that. I'm going to say it. I'm going to choose how I'll say this. This has been my journey over the last 10 years, really. And people have looked at me and thought, man, he has gone crazy. He's blowing up. But it's because all the assumptions that I had about God and religion were not all true. They weren't all bad, but they weren't all true. And I've started to see a clearer picture. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to say something in a minute. But listen, we have to trust in God. So Jesus is saying, listen, don't you trust in God? I mean, don't let your hearts be hard. Don't you trust in God? And the disciples are like, yeah, we do. And Jesus is like, and isn't that hard to do because you can't see God, right? And they're like, no, we can't. And he's like, so you can't see God, but you trust in I'm telling you, you can see me. I am the perfect. You're never going to get a more clear picture of who God is than me right here. So as you trust in God, I'm asking you to trust in me. So that's what I was getting to. So throughout his ministry, this is why you should read the Gospels. In fact, if you've ever lost faith or confidence in God, you should read the, the Gospels with this question in mind. This question, what, what do I learn about God from watching Jesus? What can I learn from God, about God, from watching Jesus? What can I learn about our Heavenly Father? And listen, I'll tell you why he did that in just a minute. So they're walking along one day, and this is found in John chapter 9. They're walking along one day, and this is kind of another famous story. The apostles see this blind man, and they see this blind man coming. And since they already know everything about God, and they know who God is and how God works, and they've already got God in a box. They know exactly what to say to Jesus. So say they see this blind man coming, and they know that he's blind for one of two reasons, that he sinned or his parents sinned. And, and either he sinned, and so God caused him to go blind because they believed that God punished people, and if you were blind or you were sick or you are whatever, that it was a punishment. And so either, they, either the kid sinned, the boy sinned, or his parents sinned, and this was a way to punish the parents because now the son couldn't support them as they got older in life. So they asked Jesus this question. They're like, hey, Jesus, so see the blind guy? <laughs> so we just want to know. We're curious. Who was it that sinned? Was it his, his parents or him? Huh? Because we got God all figured out. We know what God is like, and we know that that's the way it works. And Jesus goes, no, that's not the way it works. You've got it all wrong. <laughs> no, 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 Jesus, one of them sinned, right? Either his parents, and Jesus is like, no, that's not the way it works. That's not what God is like. Your whole life, you've grown up thinking with illness. God did not punish this man with illness. He's not blind because somebody sinned, and you're thinking, but your whole life, you've thought that's the way it worked. Your whole life, you believe that's the way it worked, and Jesus goes, it's not like that. That's why I'm here. I'm here because there's generations and generations and generations of people that are missing 
misunderstanding who our Father is. So I'm here to set the record straight, clear that up. So Jesus is teaching one day about love. And he's talking about loving your neighbor. Y'all know this story, so I'll just kind of paraphrase it. This guy stands up. He goes, hey, I get it. I love, you know, love your neighbor. I'm all with it. That's awesome. But Jesus, which of the Judeans do I really need to love, right? Because you don't expect me to love all the Judeans. You just, you know, I know that God, God doesn't even love all the Judeans. He loves most of them, you know, the sons and daughters of Abraham. But God doesn't even love all the Judeans. So which of the Judeans do I need to love so that I can be really clear on what it means to love my neighbor, right? Because after all, <laughs> We study one of our one of our heroes in 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 our in in uh, my lifetime. We always praise King David, for example. <laughs> King David obviously didn't love his enemies. In fact, it says King David despised so many of those people, hated his enemies. That's why he went to war and destroyed them and killed them. And he was a man after God's own heart. We know God doesn't love all these people. So tell us which of the Judeans, because I'm just curious. Just curious. I just want to know because God can't love everybody God has favorites right and Jesus responds to this question <coughs> with one of the coolest stories ever told and it's the story of the good Samaritan and he takes somebody that everybody in his crowd that was listening he takes somebody that they all probably despised hated uh, were disgusted by you know, just repulsed by. He takes this person, the Samaritan, and he makes him the hero of the story. And, and in doing that, he redefined what it was to be a neighbor from that generation on forever and ever and ever. He totally took it. And suddenly, someone that they would have had nothing to do with is the hero of the story. It was disruptive. It was disturbing. But God doesn't have favorites. And that a neighbor, and this, this is what Jesus is saying, this is so amazing. In this moment, his audience didn't know what was actually unfolding before their eyes. Jesus redefines neighbor for every single person, for every generation, forever and ever and ever. And he basically says this, that a neighbor, I'm going to tell you, a neighbor is anyone who has a need that you can meet. Wow, that's real broad, right? That's a neighbor. Your neighbors aren't people who look like you or even like you or even think like you, want to live like you. There's someone in, in, that has need, someone that has need. And Jesus says, you have to love your neighbors. And he redefines that. And then they're like, wow, that's amazing. And then Jesus says this, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And they're like, yeah, we've not only heard that said, that's the way it is, right? We hate our enemies. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. Dang, he hated his enemies. He despised his enemies. And, and, and we have to hate our enemies. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. And they said, well, if we're not supposed to hate our enemies, what's the alternative? All <laughs> right? If we don't hate our enemies, what are we supposed to do? And Jesus goes, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly like your father in heaven would tell you. Love your enemies, to which they would say, but wait, God, does God really love his enemies? Jesus would say, yeah, he actually does. Much later, the Apostle Paul, he's writing uh, 
a letter, and he says this. He says, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God. Now, he didn't write this to you. This is to the first, uh, first century church. He says, while we were enemies of God, God sent his son to die for us. See, they had it all wrong. Well, God can't love our enemies. God doesn't love his enemies. Yeah, he does. He says, I tell you, love your enemies. And not only that, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Papa in heaven. In other words, if you want to be like Daddy, if you want to be like Papa in heaven, then you have to love your enemies. You have to pray for those people who come against you, who attack you. Why? Because your Father in heaven does. This was such a paradigm shift, okay? And people that had grown up in this crazy religious environment, this was mind-blowing, but this is why Jesus came. He didn't simply come to pay for our sins. He came to explain and show us what God is really like. This is why he drew, uh, drew us to himself. He talked about himself in such a way that people would see him and accept him as the object of their faith. So you're telling us that God likes everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus would say, yeah. And here's the proof, and he says this to his audience. He says, have you ever noticed that he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good? <laughs> right? Have you ever noticed that when the sun comes up, it comes up for everybody? And when the sun goes down, it goes down for everybody? Right? And then he says, have you ever noticed that he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous? Have you noticed that the rain doesn't stop with the Gentile crops and doesn't stop with the Judean crops, doesn't stop with the Samaritan crops, doesn't stop with the Galilean crops, right? When it rains, it rains for everybody, everybody. And when it stops, it stops. Have you noticed that God extends his grace to everybody this long? They were that they thought they had God wrong. They were so wrong. Their view of God was so wrong. Jesus shows up and he's starting to clear everything up. He's starting to reveal what God is really like, the nature of his heavenly Father. And he says, "Listen, I need to be the object of your faith because to trust in him as he presented himself as an invitation to trust in God as God actually is. Jesus is saying, listen, you've got God so wrong, so wrong. You need to trust me so that I can show you what he really is like, not the way you've thought about him all these years. So the moral of the story, this is a little bit disturbing, and I don't want you to take this wrong. But listen, if you've ever had a hard time uh, understanding God and you want to know what God is like, if you have any people who are maybe new to faith or coming in wanting to know a little bit more what God is like, you need to tell them this, and you can tell them that I said it, but they're going to come and blame me. Don't start with Genesis. Start with Jesus. Okay? If you want to know what God is like, don't start 
in Genesis. Start with Jesus because Jesus isn't simply a chapter in the story. Jesus is the entire story. So I'll tell you who understood that better than anyone probably who's ever lived ever, and that's the Apostle Paul. Paul got it because, listen, Paul, as you know, he steps on the pages of history. He is, I mean, he's burning churches. He's burning Christians. He's arresting Christians. He's having them thrown in prison. He's torturing and executing them. I mean, he's a mean, bad, and in and, and Paul's words, he's the best Pharisee ever, so he lacked humility also. <laughs> he had no self-esteem problems, but Paul comes on, and he's, he's just this evil, crazy guy, and then all of a sudden, he has an encounter with God, and when he has an encounter with God, if he, he starts to following Jesus. He becomes a Jesus follower, and when he's a Jesus follower, he becomes an activist, just like he was an activist against Christianity, against what was called the way, or he called it the Nazarene sect, because Jesus was from, from Nazareth. He becomes an activist for Jesus. And, and Paul, he is at the epicenter of the transition because he understood pre-Christ. In fact, Paul, before Jesus, okay, before Jesus, before his conversion, he didn't believe that God was the, he didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't believe that Jesus raised from the dead. Okay, he didn't believe any of that stuff. And then all of a sudden he has this encounter with God. Now he's a Jesus follower. Now he's an activist. And Paul understood better than anyone the relationship between religions, the Jewish religion, the pagan religion, and this new thing that was happening called the way. When Jesus declared himself the Son of God, Paul understood it better than anybody else. And here's how Paul summarizes it. Now, he's writing a letter, and this is, we, we call it the book of Colossians, but it was just a letter. And he's writing this letter, and in this letter, he's talking about all the religions. He's talking about pagan religions, even Judaism. And he's saying that all the customs, listen to this, all the customs, all the traditions, all the do's and don'ts, all the things that you have felt weighted down by as it relates to your religion, whatever your religion says, all these things before Jesus, all these things before Jesus, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. Now think about that. Think about a shadow. Now we're going to try this and uh, see if I kind of set it up close. Little magic trick here. See? You can tell if you can see this on camera or not. So anybody want to take a stab at what that is? I don't know if you can see this on camera or not. It's a lantern, right? So you could, you could get a lot from a shadow. Anybody? Guess? Ah, oh, flower arrangement. Man, you guys are incredible. Shadow. Right? Now, if you live at my house, don't guess. <laughs> right? You, you can learn a lot from a shadow, but you can't learn everything. 
okay? You can learn a lot from a shadow. You can tell some things by the shadow, right? But you can't tell everything that the shadow is casting until you see the caster, okay? See, you can see things from a shadow. You can tell some things from a shadow, but until you see the shadow caster, you can't see everything clearly. When the law is of far less consequence, not because the shadow is incorrect, the shadow's not incorrect, it's incomplete. Oh, and when the shadow caster shows up, everything becomes clear. Listen again to what Paul says. These are all a shadow of things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ, the shadow caster. These all are things to come. He would say, but this is why Jesus' apostles, as much as they were trying to understand God, they had it wrong because they had grown up on the shadow Listen, the problem with most of the church people today, still today, right now, sitting in churches all over the world, the problem most people still have is they're living their life on the shadow of who God is. They have these assumptions. They think they know God, and they have this little kind of picture, and they're living. Listen, it's not that it's incorrect. It's incomplete. There's more to God than the shadow. Jesus came to be the shadow caster. That was the whole point. Jesus came so that they would stop looking at the shadow and start looking at the shadow caster because Jesus says, you want to see God? I am the perfect representation of who God is. Jesus was the perfect representation of the Father. Jesus says, this is really important that you guys understand this. He's talking to the apostles. There's a day that I'm going to leave this earth. And when I leave this earth, I, I have come to this earth so that you can see the Father. Because when I leave, you need to have a perfect relationship with the Father. And to have that relationship with the Father, you have to see as he truly is, not the way you've always thought about him. I would say that to the church today in the 21st century. Listen, your relationship with God, it can't be how you've always thought him to be. You need to see the reality of who he is. When you see who God truly is, it will change your whole life. And then it goes back to the question, if you haven't been paying attention today. You say, well, then how do we know what God truly is like? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Right? It's Jesus. Jesus is the shadow caster. Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father. This is why we shouldn't be surprised when we go throughout the Gospels. Jesus constantly talks about belief in, trust in, belief in, trust in. Why so much about belief? Here's why. Because the currency of a relationship is what? In, in, in other words, Jesus came to establish race relationship. What is the currency of any relationship? Any relationship. It's trust, right? The currency of any relationship is trust. When trust is gone, when trust is broken, the relationship is broken. 
And, and Jesus comes in, and he's, it's, it's not obedience. The currency of a relationship is not obedience. It's not fear. It's not, well, I will if you will, or I won't if you won't, you know. It, that's not what it is. It's trust. And when trust becomes the center point, Jesus is inviting people to place their trust in him as he perfectly represents and identifies the Father, Jesus. So that's why when you read the book of Genesis, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, uh, what was broken between God and mankind? It was trust. So to be the object of your faith. Me, I want the first century followers, I want to be the object of your faith. I want to be the object of your trust. I want you to trust me. So I'm putting all this together. I'm trying to speed up. I know you can tell. I'm spitfire. Listen, God so loved the world. God so loved the world. God, your heavenly father, he so loved the world that he wanted you to know what he's really, really like. And so John, again, who, who's dictating this, he's writing it down. John's old now, and he's trying to figure out how to start this book. And he says, man, how can I start this book? What can I say? He says, I got it. He says, the word became flesh. Whoo, man, that's powerful. The word, the truth, God himself, the word, the, the truth, the testimony became flesh. Not only did he become flesh, he dwelt. He lived among us. The only way I can describe it, the only way I describe it is powerful, amazed, God, he loved us so much, he wanted to show us. But the problem is, God is spirit. So God sent his son to take care of that problem. And the spirit became flesh. Man, nothing more powerful than that. God revealed himself through Jesus. Here's what we discover throughout the Gospels. And here's what you've discovered. Many of you in your lifetime, in talking to people, who have this amazing, unshakable, trust-in, powerful faith. Just like you, listen, God is most honored by our living, active, death-defying, in spite of trust in Him. Okay? Just like you're honored by that. Listen, if you're in a relationship and you're most honored, if you have a friend or a loved one or a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife and, and you make a mistake and God knows you, you make mistakes or they make a mistake and, and trust is broken and they can look at you and they can say, you know what, in spite of what you've done, I trust you. There's nothing more honoring than that. God is most honored by our living, active, death-defying, in spite of trust in him. It looked like a promise was broken. You broke somebody's heart, but they decided to trust you anyway. That's what having a relationship with God actually looks like, because that's what most amazed God, and that's what he invited people to. I'm going to skip down. An active faith in God actually looks different in every season. Over the next few weeks, what we're going to do, and I'm going to give you a precursor, Jonathan, if you want to come up. Over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about five things. Now, there's really more than five, 
uh, but there are five specific things that we're going to point out that really, really grow or blow up your faith. And when I say blow up, I mean it in a positive sense, like, you know, blow up in a good way, that, that blow up your faith. And, and we're going to talk about those over the next five weeks because all five of these things, they come into play all throughout our walk of life, you know, because an active faith in God actually looks different in every season. For example, teenage faith, okay? Teenage faith doesn't look like all y'all's faith, right? Teenage faith, when what challenges a teenager's faith? Maybe when their parents get divorced or when they're back and forth between houses or peer pressure or dealing with temptations, stuff that teenagers deal with, right? All five of these things we're going to talk about come into play and they help create enduring faith. College students. College students face a different kind of challenges. Faith in terms of intellectual challenges. Maybe living alone, maybe living away from home. Married faith. That looks different. That creates different challenges. Uh, how to trust God, whether to have kids or not, or struggling with having kids, or finances, or trust issues. Listen, I just want to emphasize over the next few weeks, we're going to take a really deep dive into that unshakable, crazy, awesome faith. And we're going to ask the question, how do I get that? Where do I sign up? How do I get that kind of faith? that lasts, that's strong. So I challenge you to be here. Be a part of this entire series for the next few weeks. And if you've ever felt like maybe your faith or your hope was slipping and sliding away, be here. Be here because we're going to help explain all of that in this series. If you're looking to strengthen your faith, maybe looking to restart your faith, maybe you have a friend that needs to just have faith, regain faith, faith. We're going to give you some handles. And perhaps over the next few weeks, you'll have a greater understanding of what happened to your faith. Why at one point you really had strong faith. Maybe it was built on somebody else because a lot of people think they have strong faith, but then they realize that it was really just built on my mom's faith or it was really just built on my dad's faith or my brother's faith. We're going to jump into the first of these faith catalyst next week and they're going to help blow up and grow your faith so i challenge you to be a part of this be a part of what's going on because to know jesus is to know god and it takes a certain amount of faith to put all of your hope and trust in that amen